What I want to do this morning from John 13 is set before you three ways the sovereign Son of God loves His disciples. Three ways the sovereign Son of God loves His disciples. And I want to leave you with a few comments on how that love should transform our lives. But before we jump in with both feet, let me clarify a couple of matters that will help all of us better understand uh, this passage. First of all, you need to know up front that the love I will talk about today is not depicted here as the general kind of love that God has for the world. Say, for example, in his providential care of over the whole created order. Uh, or, or even the love that we see in his salvific stance towards the world, who, who rejects God's patient invitations to be saved from condemnation. The Bible speaks of God's love in both of those ways, but, but here we find something deeper, something more particular, a particular love that God demonstrates towards his own people who are in the world but who are no longer part of the world. John makes this distinction clear in verse 1, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The love that's being emphasized in our passage is the special sort of love that God's Son has for his own, for his disciples. The ones that he has chosen out of the world to belong to himself. They are the sheep that have been taken out of the world and given to the shepherd. Paul speaks of this unique love when he says in Ephesians 5, 25, that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He loves the church in a way he doesn't love the rest of the world. So if you're not a Christian this morning, if you wouldn't claim to be a Jesus follower... Please listen to these things about Jesus' love rightly. You will experience the special love of Jesus for His own only if you become His own. Only if you become His own. Only if His love becomes beautiful to you today and you can't help but want to follow this loving Savior and give yourself to Him. And if you're already a Christian, then I would encourage you to let these words remind you of the great love with which you've been shown in Jesus Christ. Let them encourage your soul and stir you, as Paul prayed in Ephesians 3, to comprehend with all the saints what is the the height and breadth and length and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Let this text press you more deeply into what Emily confessed earlier in her baptism that Christ loved me and gave himself up for me. So this passage was written for unbelievers to embrace God's special love by becoming Christ's own through faith and for believers to be deepened in God's love as Christ's own Another thing to clarify, and this also comes from verse 1, we've now entered the evening before the day that Jesus suffers 
his own crucifixion, which is spoken about here as Jesus' hour to depart out of the world back to the Father. So when we hear at the end of verse 1 that Jesus loved his own to the end, we shouldn't merely, uh, we, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't see that as he loved them until the end of washing their feet. No, the cross is in Jesus' sight. It is, it is hours away. When it says he loved them to the end, John has in mind not merely the washing of the disciples' feet, but the crucifixion of God's Son. And the foot washing, as we'll see, is a symbolic act pointing us to the cross and what Jesus accomplishes on the cross for his followers. In fact, the last words that Jesus utters on the cross in chapter 19, verse 30, it is finished are very much related to the language John uses here in chapter 13, verse 1. He loved them to the end. We see that Jesus loved his disciples to the uttermost when we look at his death on the cross. So when we see Jesus serving his disciples and teaching his disciples and praying for his disciples over the next five chapters, we shouldn't forget he's doing all this before dying. For his disciples. Everything he's doing and saying and praying prepares his disciples for his coming death and teaches his disciples what his death is about. Such that when we later hear Jesus say, It is finished, we know exactly what it is that is finished. We will see some of that today. So that brings us to where I told you we were heading to begin with. So let me set before you three ways the sovereign Son of God loves His disciples. Number one, the sovereign Son of God loves us by humbly becoming a slave. The sovereign Son loves us by humbly becoming a slave. There's no doubt that John emphasizes the sovereignty of Jesus throughout our passage. In verses 1, 3, and 11, we see that Jesus knows everything. He knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. That's verse 1. He knew the Father had given all things into his hands. That's verse 3. He knew who was to betray him. That was verse 11. He even knew the true spiritual condition of the disciples and Judas before God whether they were truly clean or unclean. We see that in verse 10. So Jesus knows everything. We also see that Jesus is controlling everything. He doesn't act until the decisive moment that Satan compels Judas to betray him in verse 2. He tells the disciples precisely why things are unfolding the way they are with Judas and Satan in verses 18 and 19. And he even tells Judas what to do once again, I mean, once Satan actually enters him in verse 27. Jesus does all this in submission to his Father's will, of course, but that doesn't make Jesus in less less control of the situation than his Father is. It just means that he's controlling everything in relation to his Father at every point. Verse 3 even adds that the Father had given all things into Jesus' hands. All things. 
Everything is in Jesus' power and functioning under his authority and unfolding precisely as he governs it to unfold. Jesus is sovereign. Gary even referred to a while ago, pointed us back to chapter 1 of John's Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him. The fingertips that He used to create the stars, Gary was speaking about. This is Jesus. He is sovereign. When we put these things together, there's not a higher position in the universe that you could be in than the position that Jesus is in. There's not a higher authority you could possess than the unlimited authority given to Jesus by God the Father. No one is more glorious or more sovereign. But it's at this very point... At the point of presenting the supremacy of Jesus to us over all things, that John tells us what he witnesses from the Son of God. He rose from supper and laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. What has John witnessed? John has witnessed the sovereign son dress himself as a slave of all. The highest authority in the universe willingly takes upon himself the lowest place of service among men. And why? He does it to demonstrate that the purpose of his coming was not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. To borrow the words of Mark 10.45, Jesus came to serve. The Son of God loved us by coming to serve our well-being, to to show us hospitality, to to tend to our needs, to, to treat us as guests at his table. This is remarkably loving. Remarkably loving, because the only thing we deserve from God's Son is his eternal condemnation and judgment. We were created in God's image to reflect the glory of God's Son in the created order. We were made to live alongside other people, to to serve them in in humility, in the humility of our Maker, the Son Himself, so that everybody would see Him in all that we do. But ever since sin entered the world, we've become puffed up and proud and and, and full of self-centeredness and attempted to rob God's Son of His glory, and therefore we stand guilty before Him. We're even told in Psalm 2 that unless you serve God's Son and worship Him above all others, His wrath will be quickly kindled against you. You will perish in the way. He will break you and and dash you to pieces like a potter when He smashes His vessels. As King of the universe, God's Son has every right to destroy us for our failure to bear His image well. we, We even get... A little glimpse of this in Matthew's gospel when 
when, uh, when Jesus tells his disciples after Peter cuts off the guy's ear at his arrest, do you, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? I can wipe these guys out on one command. I can destroy my enemies. And yet he rises from supper and washes the feet of rebels whom he has graciously chosen out of the world. Despite their many sins and pride and unbelief, he he stoops to serve them. And not only does he stoop to serve them by washing feet, but in, in doing so, he sets before them the very identity which they must embrace about him if they are to gain eternal life. If they are to know God and experience life in a relationship with God, they must embrace that God's promised Savior became a selfless, humble, other-serving slave who sets aside his glory for the everlasting good of people. John has reminded us in verse 3 even that, that Jesus had come from God and was going back to God. That's where he was. He, was. he had come from God. He was with the Father in glory. But as Paul says in Philippians 2, he did not count that equality with God something to be grasped and held on to. But he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. True love, which we see here demonstrated in Jesus, doesn't insist on its own way, does it? If we pay any attention to Jesus, love willingly gives up to benefit others. It it sacrifices for the good of others. It goes low to see others lifted up. We might test ourselves here because Jesus flat out reverses the world's ideas of greatness. Flat out flips them on their head. The world says that greatness is bound up with being high regardless of what it means for others. Jesus shows us here that true greatness is about going low to bring bring others up. Going low for the sake of others. How is it that you respond when you're asked to go low? Now, do you jump at the opportunity to take the role of a servant? To serve others? Do you you leap at the opportunity to, to serve your wife and your children, your co-workers and your neighbors? Or is serving something you avoid, something you dodge as it comes, as the opportunities arise, something you pretend not to see sometimes? Something you really don't see at all? We need a fresh look at the love of Jesus this morning. As God Almighty really did the truly unthinkable. Out of love for you, unworthy as you are, He stooped to the place of a servant for your eternal good. This eternal good will play itself out here in in, in our second point. Number two, the sovereign son loves us by cleansing us from our sins. 
A sovereign son loves us by cleansing us from our sins. The point of Jesus dressing himself as a slave and washing his disciples' feet was, was not to say, my love only extends to getting the dirt off your feet. No, his actions anticipate how he will get the, the sin off their filthy souls. His actions anticipate how far his love will really go over the next day and a half for them. As a slave to all, he will serve their undeserving souls, even unto death on a cross where God will remove their sins. The whole thing is symbolic. It's supposed to be read like an acted out parable. Jesus is acting out a parable here that's, that's pointing them to the greater reality bound up with Jesus' mission to cleanse guilty sinners through the cross. So with that in mind, let's walk together through verses 6 to 11. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward or after these things you will understand. I take that as a reference to the time after Jesus finishes Serving, teaching, praying, and then dying for them. After those things, it's part of the theme in John's gospel that says true understanding for the disciples only comes after Jesus' death. Because once he rises from the dead, he sends the Holy Spirit, who then gives them understanding into all that Jesus' all that Jesus' cross means. But until the Spirit comes and bears witness to the crucified Christ, Peter and the disciples just don't understand the true meaning of what he's doing. And that's made evident in Peter's response. Verse 8. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Now on the surface, this, this looks like a humble response. As if to say, how could it be that someone of your stature, Jesus should ever wash the feet of someone like me. I, I will not have it. I will not have you wash my feet. But beneath the surface is a disciple full of pride. What some have called false humility. Instead of patiently less letting his master serve him and teach him, he begins dictating to his master the terms of their relationship. For Peter, it will not be a relationship in which Jesus serves him by washing him. You will not relate to me like this. So Jesus calls him on it sternly. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Which is not just, uh, then we just can't be friends anymore, Peter. Jesus is threatening Peter with eternal damnation. There's only one kind of union a disciple must have with Jesus, one in which Jesus cleanses him. That's the only kind of relationship a disciple can have with Jesus, one in which Jesus cleanses him. And that is true of all of us. If we are to relate to Jesus, we must let him cleanse us. If Peter refuses the way Jesus comes to him as a servant to wash him, if he can't set aside his pride to accept that the Son of God humbled himself for Peter's sake, then he will have no 
share in all the inheritance that's bound up with Christ and his kingdom. John uses this same language in Revelation to speak of, uh, of, of those who either share or don't share in, in things like the first resurrection, which is the resurrection of life, or uh, share or don't share in, in eating from the tree of life that's in the garden, or share or don't share in the holy city when it comes. Not to have a share with Jesus means you are separated from Him and the blessings of His salvation. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Well, of course, Peter then reverses his response. He just still misses the point. Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and and my head. He's still not seeing the totality of what Jesus' foot washing points to in the cross. So Jesus says to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean. He's referring to all the disciples now, minus Judas. You all are clean. Meaning the kind of cleansing I provide is a once-for-all kind of cleansing, Peter. Such that I can even declare you already completely clean by virtue of my love for you and by virtue of my knowledge of you and by virtue of what I will accomplish on the cross for you. To go to the hands and the, and the head is to miss the point of what I'm trying to show you. By washing your feet as a slave, I'm pointing you to the sufficiency of my slaveness, of my life and my death for you. My work as as a slave doesn't need your further input, Peter. It doesn't need to be supplemented by other things you want to add. When I say it is finished tomorrow on the cross, your cleansing will be finished. So what Jesus is telling him. The deeper significance of, uh, of this symbolic act even becomes clearer when he tells them straight up that despite the fact that he's washed everybody's feet, including Judas's, Judas is still not clean. Judas is still unclean. The point of the foot washing isn't ultimately about how clean Jesus makes the skin on their feet or their hands or their head, but how clean he will make their souls when he dies for them as a slave of all. If they reject this about him, then they will remain unclean like Judas. And they will eventually be cast out of Jesus' community just like Judas was cast out of Jesus' community. It happens in verse 27. We'll get there next time we're in chapter 13. They won't, he won't have a share. That's true for us. True for us as well. Everybody in this room. If we reject Jesus as the slave who, gave, who came to serve us, to wash us, then we will remain unclean like Judas. and We will be cast out. We won't get to share in Jesus' blessings or His life or His glory if we reject His humble mission. But if we embrace His humble mission, if we embrace that God Himself became a slave in the person of Jesus to serve 
our eternal good, then we will share in His blessings. We will know what it means to receive the total cleansing of all our sins. Not a single sin will be left on us that hinders us even from the presence of God. This is where we see the extent of Jesus' love for us, folks. Because nothing unclean is allowed in God's holy presence. Nothing unclean is allowed in God's holy presence. The Old Testament screams this at us all over the place. Adam and Eve become unclean and they're kicked out of the garden. God had Israel built the tent of meeting with the veil separating the holy place from the most holy where God revealed His presence and nothing unclean was allowed to enter. The sins of the people and the priests and the mediators had to be atoned for and cleansed through the sacrifices. People had, had, even had to go outside of the camp of God's assembly if they became unclean according to the stipulations in God's law. Isaiah curses himself when he sees God's glory and he says, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He's pronouncing a curse on himself. I am worthy of eternal condemnation because I'm a man of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, uh, the Lord of hosts. In Ezekiel, God curses the priests in Israel, saying they have made no distinction between the holy and the common. Neither have they taught the difference between the unclean and the clean, so that I am profaned among them. And it didn't go over well for these guys. God says, I have poured out my indignation upon them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. I have returned their way upon their heads. And even when we get to the end of the Bible, what do we see there? Revelation 21, 27. Nothing unclean will be allowed to enter God's presence in the holy city on the last day. Everybody who's left unclean will be tormented with eternal fire under God's omnipotent fury outside the holy city. Nothing unclean is allowed in the presence of a holy God. The Bible screams this at us all over the place. If we are all born into the sinful world and by our very nature commit sinful deeds that make us unclean and think self-centered thoughts that make our souls filthy before God then we're all in need of someone to take these things away from us. Lest we too suffer condemnation. We cannot enter God's presence unclean. We must first be cleansed from our sins and from our guilt before God. By washing the disciples' feet, Jesus is teaching them about what His love and His humility wins for His own people through the cross. The total cleansing 
from our sins so that we might enter God's presence with confidence and without fear of being destroyed by His wrath. If you belong to Jesus today, if you're banking on His life and death and resurrection as your only hope, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are washed away. Even if you sinned this week and sinned this morning and sinned while you were singing those songs a while ago, God has already made provision for those sins to be washed away in the blood of Jesus. 1 John 1.9 says, we can even go to God right now because of the sufficiency of Jesus' death. We can go to God right now and confess our sins to Him, no matter how heinous they may be. And if we confess our sins, the Bible says He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How does He do that? Through the one called our advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, our righteous He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus' blood cleanses us from sin and brings us into fellowship with God. We get the same picture in Hebrews when it says Christ made a single sacrifice for sins that we might have confidence to enter the holy places. How do we enter it? We enter it by the blood of Jesus, he says. We can even draw near with full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Titus 2.14 also says that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. If you trust in Christ, there's no area of your dirty life that the blood of Jesus misses. No sinful stains that are so deep, the blood of Jesus cannot remove. And all this so that we gain fellowship with God, access to God. So that we can come into God's presence clean and free to enjoy His fullness in everything. Friends, that's good news. It's really good news. This is the good news we preach to each other. This is the good news that we take to the world. We can walk up to any sinner on this planet, look him straight in the face, and say, your sins are not too much for the blood of Jesus Christ. I can testify it because he took mine away. You are not too ugly for the blood of Jesus to wash you clean. This is the good news we preach to each other and to the world. It doesn't get any better than knowing that Jesus' death is sufficient to take away all my sinful doubting and all my proud remarks at others and all my self-seeking actions toward my wife and all my cynical thoughts about the church and Christianity at large and all my godless chatter about people that don't do things like me. And all my grumbling attitudes to have it all just wiped away through a sufficient sacrifice that I might have God is good news. 
sins that if we could number them would be as numerous as the grains of sand on the seashore. Sins that if we could feel the horror of them have mounted an eternity of fire against us. And all of them wiped away. Wiped away by the blood of Jesus. I pray that we would never get over it, but say with David, blessed is the one whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Number three. The Sovereign Son loves us by transforming us to love like Him. Sovereign Son loves us by transforming us to love like Him. So instead of destroying us, He comes humbly as a slave to serve our well-being. That was the first glimpse at His love. The next glimpse at His love came in seeing that He served our well-being even when it meant He must... He must die to cleanse us from our sins. And now we look at how His love also thrusts us into a total new way of life, a total new way of living. Verse 12. When Jesus had washed their feet and put on His outer garments and resumed His place, He said to them, Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord... And teacher, have washed your feet. You also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Pay close attention to this, Redeemer Church. Jesus is not saying that there are some of his disciples uh, who don't do these things. And what they miss out on is just some blessings tacked on to their Christian life. Jesus is saying that if you don't do these things, you are quite frankly not his disciples. And therefore not blessed. In your union with him. You're like... The other people he already talked about before who refused to go low, who, who refused to uh, entrust themselves to Jesus, you have no share with him. So please pay attention to what Jesus has just done. What he has said here is that our entire Christian life must imitate his hum- humility and his sacrificial love for others. You must give up your preferences to see others prosper. You must go low in service to see others raised up. You must humble yourself to serve another's well-being. Jesus isn't isn't commanding us to imitate his work on the cross. Only he is without sin. He's He's the only suitable savior to wash us clean. We can't wash others clean. But he is commanding us to imitate his sacrificial love for others, which drove him to the cross. Jesus will tell his disciples later, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And that's basically what he's getting across here. 
We also shouldn't see that Jesus is, is, is commanding us uh, to limit true Christian service and the highest Christian service to, walk to, the, to the literal act of washing each other's feet. It may be very meaningful and right on certain occasions to do just that in love for others. Such as we see mentioned of widows, godly widows that is, in 1 Timothy 5.10. But the heart of Jesus' command is not bound up with the mere act of foot washing. As we've seen throughout, it's, it's, this foot washing is a, is a parable pointing to something else. His command is bound up with His foot washing in particular, which pointed to something. It pointed to his identity as the Son of God who loved us by becoming a servant for us even when it cost him his life. So the command is this. To put it in other words, the extent to which Jesus willingly served us should become the extent to which we willingly serve one another. 1 John 3.16 says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Anything less is simply not Christian living. Jesus' love, you, we, should, we should see this here, because what he's doing is he's establishing the new community, the church. And he's saying, my love is the foundation of this new community. The way these people act in the church with one another bears witness to its foundation, my love for them. And why would it be otherwise, since that's where Jesus is taking this world? He establishes us in His love now, as a community, because He's bringing a kingdom that has an eternity of love, His love, reflected in His people. And if we don't conform ourselves to that agenda now, we won't enjoy it when it arrives. The church is a people in which the world should witness God's future love breaking into the present. Does that make sense? We are an outcropping of the age to come. Oh, that Jesus' love would change us as we wait for that kingdom and remember how He loved us in order to bring us into that kingdom. At the end of a chapter on the love of God, uh, J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, highly recommend it. You can find it in the book note. J.I. Packer uh, poses a, a fairly searching question. He says this, Could an observer learn from the quality and degree of love that you show others, such as your wife, your husband, your family, your neighbors, uh, people in the church, people at work? Could an observer learn from the quality and degree of love that you show others anything at all about the greatness of God's love toward you. 
The question reflects the heart of Jesus' charge to us. Are others learning about the greatness of God's love when they observe how you treat other people? Especially other disciples of Jesus. Does a visible testimony to the magnitude of God's love for you, which we've looked at this morning, does it exist? Is a passion to love others in the the way He has loved us truly seen in in your day-to-day activities? We could look around the room right now. We, We could look around the room and we could ask ourselves, how are my other brothers and sisters witnessing the love of Christ working through me? How do I see it working through them? Could you wash each other's feet? Think about names in this room. Could you wash each other's feet? Would you be willing to give yourself to each other in that intimate, humble way? Are we around each other enough to pursue such a relationship? What sorts of initiatives are you, are you taking in serving each other's well-being? I ask these questions of you because with Jesus, I don't want any of us missing out on the joy that He promises us when we love like Him. That's what He says. Blessed are you if you do them. He isn't commanding us to love as He loved, to, to squash us. He's commanding us to love as He loved, to thrill us with more and more and more of Himself. If you're lacking in your willingness and readiness to to go low for the sake of others, to sacrifice, to see others serve, then fix your eyes once again on the extravagant love Jesus has shown to you. The less that we're feeding on His love for us, the less that we even see our need to feed on His love for us, the more our love will grow cold toward God and toward others. So let's turn from our self-centered ways to embrace the blessed life of loving like Christ. Let's not be tricked by the world's way of thinking that says that to go low means you're just going to be miserable all the time. You're just going to be missing out on what's great. Jesus has shown us that greatness is bound up with going low. And there ain't anybody greater than Jesus Christ. Greatness is bound up with going low with Christ and for Christ. With humbling ourselves as He did to serve others and their eternal well-being. And as you look at Jesus' love for you, notice that true love manifests itself in concrete actions toward others. He's washing their feet now. He's about to go die on the cross for their sins in a day and a half. It's concrete. Love is not merely an affection, not merely an emotion. It certainly involves affection. It certainly involves emotion. But that affection and that emotion is one that compels the will to act good, to act for the good of others. Just like Christ. If we possess true love, then we will be moved to humble ourselves like Christ to give of ourselves like Jesus, to to serve at all costs to ourselves like Him. 
Our knowledge of what Jesus has done for us cannot be divorced from the action of showing Jesus' love toward others. He says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So let's take him at his word and do them. We're, We're not greater than our master. If this is how he served us, by humbling himself to death for our salvation, then let us with all fervency of spirit and thanksgiving to God for his mercy. Let us us lay down our lives for the eternal well-being of others. It's it's an amazing thing that not only does he, in in the same act in which he cleanses us from our sins... He also breaks the power of sin over our lives so that we might actually serve like Him. Sin no longer rules us. Jesus rules us. He even gives us His Spirit in us to compel us and move us, and which enables us to learn how to do these things. So let's do them. How could we not after all we've received and will continue to receive from Jesus? So... Humble yourself as a dad to serve your children and your wife. Consider the interest of your sisters as better than your own and serve her. Lay down your extra-biblical preferences in life to build meaningful friendships with others that point one another to Christ. Pursue those who are hurting and don't wait till they ask you for help. Turn off your television. Get on your face before God to serve this church in prayer. Don't let your iPhone control you every five seconds in the evening. But serve your kids with all your might. Serve the visitors that enter this place. We're going to have more of them, I pray, as Dan and others join together and and meet Sunday evenings with people from the neighborhood to teach them basic things about Christianity and the Scriptures. Serve the visitors that enter this place. Shock them with a love that they've never seen or witnessed before in this world of pride and self-centeredness. Shock them with Jesus' love in you. Sit next to them. Help them find their place in the Bible. Take them to lunch afterwards. Answer their questions about the sermon. I don't always speak that clearly. There's an example. Or explain things that well. Actually care for their souls. Ask them, would you have any questions of what happened today, what we sang, what we prayed about? People need more than a red bag and a handshake. They need Christ and His fullness manifested in the church. When your children fight with each other over being first, good night. First to the bathroom, first to the dinner table. I was done first. I finished this meal before you. I got the milk first. God. When that happens at home, right? Sit them down, read them this text, read them Philippians 2, read them 1 Peter 2, and ask them, are you pursuing greatness right now? I'll show you greatness, son. I'll show you greatness, daughter. This is greatness. 
Look at what Jesus, how Jesus humbled himself for our everlasting good. And then drive them to Christ. Rejoice when strangers interrupt your schedule. Right? And give the, give the shirt off your back to see them come to Christ. If you're a rigid person, learn to be more flexible and welcome people into your home more often and show them hospitality. And don't get bent out of shape when they're staying too long. Go low. Serve them more. If you're sort of carefree and just, you know, just kind of let life happen all the time, learn to be intentional in loving others and plan your weeks around loving others. Notice the poor and raise them up. Help the weak among us and labor to see them thriving in the faith. Uphold justice for the most vulnerable and lay down your life in the public square to defend their cause. There's a thousand ways Jesus' love can manifest itself among us, especially in a church that's been given a diversity of gifts by the Holy Spirit to do so. But the starting place for all of us, even in our diversity, the starting place for all of us is to build our lives on the foundation of Jesus' love for us. The the starting place for all our growth in Jesus' love is Jesus' love. Demonstrated when the sovereign son willingly became a slave and served us unto death for our cleansing and for our transformation. May we keep looking to him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I ask that you would uh, move us all, especially me and Wes and Dale, uh, as we lead this congregation, especially your care group leaders and others. May we pursue love. May we pursue Christ. And in seeing his wonderful love towards us, may we all become passionate in our loving and humble service of others. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.